Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Welcome back to another installment of the Forge podcast. I will keep the introduction short today. Let's simply get directly into the reading of God's word, shall we? Genesis chapter 35, beginning at verse 1. Genesis 35, verse 1, the word of God. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, 
he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the Terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Elon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall be called Jacob, shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had talked with him, a pillar of stone and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel then they journeyed from Bethel and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kerjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Today's reading finds us with Jacob making a journey to Bethel. Why did he make this journey? Well, for one thing, he did it because God commanded him to do so. And for another, as you may recall, 
Jacob made a vow and he had a vow to fulfill. Back in Genesis 28, we read, and I will quote this for you. He says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, and now he's talking to God, he says, all that you give me, God, I will surely give a tenth to you. So we should also remember the significance of Bethel, where he is at now at this point in our story. This is the place where Abraham had worshipped God. And at this point in our story, um, a good question is, has Jacob been faithful to his vow that I just read? Has he been faithful to that? I would suggest that he has not been faithful to that vow. But as we will see in verses 9 through verse 13, God reiterates to Jacob the covenant promises which God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 13. I also want to point out that we see this phrase, go up. Jacob was to go up to Bethel. Now, this phrase is used in Hebrew to show that this journey is a sacred journey. And you'll notice in many other parts of Scripture, as you continue to study and read the Bible, that people always go up to Jerusalem. And it has nothing to do with the direction of travel. But it emphasizes the special place and the purpose of Jerusalem. So if you're going to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. And if you're leaving Jerusalem, going someplace else, you will go down from Jerusalem. And as you read the scriptures, you're going to see that all over the Bible. So we find Jacob making this trip, and it's not just any old trip to any old place. Jacob is going up. And remember, Bethel means house of God. So one thing we can see from the beginning of this chapter is that God did not forsake Jacob. God did not forsake Israel. And remember now, Israel is his new name. Dear Christian, God has not forsaken you. He will not ever forsake his church, which is made up of Christians just like you. We are fallen. We struggle. We make mistakes, <laughs> but it's God's covenant with us through the blood of Christ that will never fail. See, Christ does not struggle. Christ does not make mistakes. Christ, his blood is the blood of the perfect covenant. It is a perfect covenant. And this does not mean that we will not face concerns about life. doesn't mean that we are just going to have everything just wonderful and no problems ever at all. And everything is just uh, beautiful sunny skies and never a storm. That's not what this means. As we look at the life of Jacob, we see the one chosen by God 
yet he is allowed to experience grief. He worries, he has plotted and he has schemed and even, uh, he's even had in his own family in his own household here. We read about the false gods that are being worshiped in his own house. And this brings us to verse two. Can you believe we're only through verse one at this point? But let's take a look at verse two. When Jacob tells everyone to put away their false gods, he doesn't just mean put them away like we're going to put our things away, as if we would tell children to put your toys away. It literally means to throw them out, to get rid of them. And a great question for us to ask as we consider this verse, where did these gods come from, these false gods, these idols? Well, you may remember that Rachel had taken her father Laban's gods and she had hidden them. And not only that, we're at some point after the slaughter at Shechem, which we read about, read about in the previous episode. And that included the looting of the now defenseless city. And among that raid, the brothers certainly would have found idols and false gods. The bottom line is that we have false gods in and among the camp of God. And unfortunately, this shows us once again that Jacob did not have proper spiritual influence in his household. But we're going to see that he is gaining it back. So it's interesting to note that even though we have not seen the giving of the Ten Commandments at this per point in human history, there's a sense among God's covenant family that they were not to worship any other God. They're not to have idols. And they are to put on clean garments here in verse 2, Jacob says. And these clean garments were certainly not going to be clean after a three-day journey to Bethel from where they were at Shechem. But the reason for this action is a symbolic representation of repentance toward God. The old clothes were dirty. There's no doubt that they were dirty, just as our garments are filthy with our sins. And unlike the example that we have here, Christ is the one who gives us clean garments. I can never do it myself. I can never put on a clean garment myself and be good enough. But no, it's Christ who gives us clean garments. But the picture here should not be lost. There's this idea of putting away the false gods and putting on clean garments and these actions go, actually, with the very first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, in the old King James, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Or if you wanted to put it in regular modern language, you will have no other gods before me. That's what God is saying. And you will not make for yourself an image to worship. There isn't anything that looks like me. Don't try to make something that looks like me. There isn't anything that looks like me. So here as we look at Jacob 
we see something in the heart of Jacob. We see a little bit of our own hearts in Jacob. And that is simply this. We know better. Jacob knew better. Jacob knew this stuff was not supposed to be in his household. And we know better. It's interesting that even without the Ten Commandments, those first two commandments, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That's the second one. So the first one, and that's just the way I memorized it in the old uh, Victorian English. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. But even without these Ten Commandments, Jacob and the covenant family knew better, didn't they? And how is it that I can say this with such certainty, that even at a time before the Ten Commandments, human beings knew that they were supposed to worship the one true living God? How can I say that? Friends, I would draw your attention to Romans chapter 1. And this is what it tells us in Romans 1. He says, what may be known of God is manifested in them. Talking about those who uh, do not believe in God, those who are not saved, those who are not part of the covenant family. Paul says, what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, Christians, has someone ever asked you, what about the person who never hears about your Jesus? What about the person who never hears about your Bible, doesn't have your Bible? Well, friends, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that all humanity knows. That's what it just says here in Romans. All humanity knows there is one ultimate living and true God. So even at this time in human history, even in modern times now, in places where maybe the gospel has not been preached, let me assure you, humanity knows. And I would even take it a step further here. You are responsible for the light that you have been given. And no doubt there are times when even those who worship false gods, and the pagan who are still among us, and the pagan people of this time, there are times where they look around at the world around them and they say, in their heart of hearts, they think these thoughts, I know that this is not right. This idol that I'm worshiping, this God that I claim to worship, he's not the right one. He's not the one who created the stars and the heavens. He's not the one who makes my heart beat and gives me the breath of life. Deep down inside, they know. Just as Jacob and his household knew here, get rid of the false gods. Get rid of the false gods and cleanse 
your garments. So let's consider the start, the, the whole story thus far, kind of look at it on the whole and go back a few chapters in Genesis. We know that Jacob was very concerned about Esau's reception. Now remember, Jacob had left Esau. He had been deceptive. He had stolen the birthright or the blessing. He actually purchased the birthright for a bowl of uh, stew. But remember how he behaved toward his brother Esau. And remember as he's coming back into the land now, remember he gave gifts and he sent the gifts ahead of him. And so the gifts actually preceded his actual arrival. And remember how he introduces his family. And we kind of talked about that, how Jacob seems to be saying, Esau, I have my own things. I have my own family and I have not come to take anything from you. And there is peace between the two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau at this point, but Jacob moves toward Shechem. Even when he was invited by Esau to come and join him, he goes in a different direction. And in the meantime, here in the background, still there, there's this matter of the vow that Jacob made at Bethel. Not only has Jacob not returned to Bethel at this point, up at this point, but apparently in his own house, as I've made a point of it here, there's worship of false gods going on. So he promised to give God a tenth of everything, and he promised that if the God of Abraham would do these things for him, then the God of Abraham would be Jacob's God. As long as God will take care of him. Remember how he kind of made that deal? If you'll do all this for me, God, then you will be my God. Now, if you've been listening to my humble podcast for any length of time, you know that I am reformed and I place a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. There is an emphasis that I have on God's decree. I believe that God is in control of everything. So what was our last chapter about? Do you remember? There was a slaughter in the previous chapter. In fact, I just mentioned it earlier in this episode. It was a slaughter in Shechem. Dinah's brothers, Levi and Simeon, took revenge on that entire city. How safe do you suppose that it is now for the house of Israel if they stay in that area? In fact, it's one of the concerns that Jacob raises at the very end of Genesis 34. He says, I've been made obnoxious among these people because of your guys' actions. Now that's my paraphrase, but you can certainly go back and read it for yourself point is it was probably not very safe for them at all so in short i believe that what we see here is that jacob waited to fulfill his earlier commitment to god and what we see here in this story is the sovereign hand of god over the affairs of men and there's this situation in which jacob is moved along to fulfill 
um, even though he was commanded by God to go to Bethel. But there's a situation here where it's now not going to be comfortable for him to stay. So he is being kind of moved along to take care of that earlier vow. Perhaps from what we know of Jacob's character, he would have attempted to stay where it was comfortable for him. If he would have been at peace with Shechem, if Shechem and Dinah had been allowed to marry and they stayed in that area, think of how these Canaanite people there at Shechem would have intermarried into the house of Israel. So we see this terrible thing that happened in the previous chapter, yet I would emphasize God's sovereignty over it and how God uses these situations to move his people into the right direction. Was the intention of their heart evil? No question. But what was meant for evil, as we will see by the end of Genesis, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. So, you know, I, I've just kind of come to these conclusions as I look at this and I study this and I remember some things about Jacob's character as we've seen it develop over the last several chapters. You know, remember, he stayed with Laban even after his obligations were fulfilled. Well, why did he stay with Laban? Well, he didn't want to go face Esau, his brother. And it may not have been the best situation, but it was certainly not the worst situation he could be in. And so we kind of see that same kind of thing being repeated here in Shechem. So off he goes. We should notice that Jacob actually does regain spiritual leadership in his household at this point. In verse 4, we read that they gave Jacob their foreign gods and they gave their earrings. Now there's something kind of interesting here. Earrings are mentioned. And we should remember that among the spoil and the raid from Shechem that I've already talked about, there were little ones that were taken. Now we have orphans. And of course, there would be widows among this group that were basically taken captive by the sons of Jacob. And no doubt these remnants of Shechem would have their own collections of gods, of false gods as well. And the earrings that are mentioned here are like amulets or symbolic types of jewelry associated with the worship of false gods. And before you think this is too strange, I would just remind you, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me anyway, how little human behavior has really changed since the beginning of time. Have you ever heard of someone wearing a so-called Roman Catholic saint medal for good luck? Or I always wear this, it's Saint so-and-so, it's Saint Anne, or it's Saint Christopher, or whoever. And I do this because I know they're watching over me. I know it will bring me good luck, or something to that effect. Have you ever, have you ever heard of somebody keeping a lucky charm with them? Maybe it's a coin, or even a rabbit's foot. That's right, even a rabbit's foot. You know, pagan worship was no different back then than it is today. Friends, there's not going to be any luck coming your way because you're wearing a medal of a saint around your neck. 
or you have some charm on your bracelet or whatever it may be. These things are amulets. They are meant to um, be worship really to some kind of false God or false entity or a false belief system. And they really have no place in your life, dear Christian. So moving on to verse five, verse five is interesting too, because we see the beginning of a pattern, which will be repeated in other parts of the Bible. This phrase shows up, the terror of God, the terror of God among the surrounding people groups that were near and around God's covenant family. And R.C. Sproul calls it a divinely induced panic. You can read about it in Exodus 23, 37. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. There we have examples of how God put fear into the hearts of Israel's enemies. So we should also note that when Israel now, Jacob, who's now Israel, when he first made contact with Hamar and Shechem, and they went and presented their case to the men at the city gate. Remember what they said of Jacob. They said, these men are at peace with us. But now, clearly, the word is traveling fast through the area. And the other people groups of this area, Canaanites, they are aware that Jacob's clan is not just a group of peaceful shepherds. They've got a well one reputation now as warriors, really warriors of revenge. At last we make it to Bethel. Jacob builds an altar there and he finally fulfills his vow to the Lord. He calls the place El Bethel or Bethel, and the E-L here, the L in front of Bethel, here in Hebrew it has a genitive sense. So the entire phrase together means of the God of Bethel, of the God of Bethel. And of course, Bethel means the house of God. So you have this phrase of the God of the house of God may sound a little bit strange to our ears, but the point here is that um, Jacob is building an altar to the God of Abraham, and he is acknowledging God's covenant promises. He's consecrating the promised land here, and he's making a connection back to God's earlier revelation um, that Jacob himself had received at the same location. And he also models for the others here that they are to worship the one true living God. They're not to partake in pagan worship. So throw out the old idols and worship the one true living God here at this altar, El Bethel. So we also come up to a verse here, which I've mentioned at length in previous episodes. We read in verse eight that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. 
And just as a reminder in our family tree, Rebecca is Isaac's wife. And these are the parents of Jacob and Esau. And now remember, Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. So when Rebecca came to marry Isaac, her nurse, who would be like today's nanny or, um, you know, some kind of a nursemaid with the family, she makes the trip with Rebecca. And I told you earlier that Deborah's death is recorded, but Rebecca's death is not. And it's interesting to see that Rebecca is really the matriarch here, the wife of Isaac, but she's not mentioned. Probably due to deception when Jacob stole Esau's blessing from the father. And it's probably for this reason that she's not mentioned. It's almost as if Deborah is mentioned in her place. Just something interesting to notice there. But from verses 9 through 15, we see a restatement of the earlier promises of God. We see here once again that God reaffirms the new name for Jacob and he calls him Israel. And I want you to notice that when Jacob is kind of doing things uh, correctly in faith and in submission to God, God will call him Israel. And when we see Jacob operating in fear or he's attempting to take matters into his own hands or for that matter, he's losing control of a situation, his name will remain Jacob in the scriptures. It's not that these two names are used uh uh, interchangeably, but you'll notice as you read through it, you know, good behavior, it's Israel, bad behavior, it's Jacob. <laughs> Interesting. So we see here in these verses, again, verses 9 through 15, uh, the use of what I would call uh, royal language. And there's a blessing here. Israel's to be fruitful and to multiply, to be the company of nations. Kings will come from Israel's body. The land of promises, which were made to Abraham and Isaac, are now restated. And we also see in these verses yet another theophany. As God comes down to talk with Israel and then he departs. And what else do we remember about Jacob and this particular location? Well, remember his first time here, there was a ladder. It was a stairway to heaven, so to speak. And remember how the angels were going up and down. And so we have another visitation here, and it's similar to the earlier one. God comes down to talk with Israel, and then he goes back up again. I would point out also that we have another first here in the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 35, so we only have 15 more chapters to go, but still be on the lookout. This is a book of firsts. If you look in verse 14, it is where we find the very first mention of a drink offering being poured out to the Lord. 
And of course, we've seen the role of wine already in the book of Genesis. But I would point out to us that the wine we drink at the Lord's table as Christians is indeed something we do in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. But it was he who, when he was partaking with his disciples, and he told them that this wine was the representation of the blood of the new covenant, that it would be his blood. No longer would there be drink offerings to be poured out on an altar. No more lambs led to the slaughter to be sacrificed. There would be no more sacrifices. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Friends, we should be very careful with the words that come out of our mouth. Why do I say that? Because we're going to see something here that happens next with Rachel. Be careful what we wish for. Be careful what we pray for. As our story moves on here, we see Rachel, the wife of Israel. She's the one that Jacob loved, remember? She dies here in childbirth. And this happens near a place called Ephrath. Ephrath is known by another name, and it even mentions it in Scripture here. Bethlehem, same location. And we remember how she longed for a son. Rachel wants another son. And in chapter 30, she even went so far as to come to Jacob and say, Give me a son or I will die. Remember that? Well, here she gives birth to a second son, and she names him Ben-Onai. The Bible tells us that she makes this pronouncement as she is dying. And his name means son of my sorrow. Now, that's a very fitting name. It seems to be very fitting, Ben-Onai. But of course, Israel comes in and says, no, not son of my sorrow, Benjamin, son of my right hand. But I want you to look at something here. And if I haven't made my case strong enough at this point, dear Christian, please take note of how important the book of Genesis is to what we believe about our Savior. Now, no doubt during a hard labor and Knowing that she was dying, Rachel weeps. Why else would the name of her son be Son of My Sorrow? Later in Israel's history, a prophet comes along whose name is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophesies, and this is what he says. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, did you catch that? Who does the prophet say is weeping? Rachel. That's right, Rachel. So what in the world is the prophet talking about? Well, I'm so glad you asked. You see, Ramah was in the region of the land which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, remember, Benjamin 
was Ben Onai, who got the name change from Israel, from son of my sorrow to son of my right hand, Benjamin. And he is the son of Rachel. And of course, he is the patriarch of the tribe which bears his name, Benjamin. So Rachel weeps over the destruction of the north in 722 BC. And these words are quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, as he records Herod's slaughter of the children. Now, there's something you need to remember about Herod. He was crazy, even by uh, Roman standards, even in uh, secular history. What we know of Herod is that the man was nuts. But you will remember that the wise men came to see Herod about this new king of the Jews that had been born. And they were supposed to come back to Herod with the location of the new king. And this is actually part of the Christmas story as we retell it here in the West. And Herod claimed that he also wanted to worship this new king of the Jews. But if you're familiar with the story, if you know anything about the true Christmas story, the wise men left town and they went out another way and they never reported back to Herod. After all, Herod was the Roman installed king of that area. And he had political ambitions. He wanted to do whatever he could do and then get out of there and get promoted. But when he realizes that the wise men are not coming back, Herod was, the Bible says, exceedingly angry. And he sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what the prophet, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Well, what is Matthew talking about there? Well, if you continue to read on, he quotes directly from Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because there are, they are no more. I've said this before, and I'll repeat it again here. If the book of Genesis cannot be trusted, then the entire Bible will fall apart. And I continue to be amazed at the interwoven story found within the pages of this great book of books. There is so much internal proof and consistency throughout the Bible. Now you can choose to say it's not true. You can say it's all made up or that it's been corrupted or any other excuse that you want to bring. But the truth is that if you look at it and you apply equal standards of textual criticism, history, linguistics, anthropology, and all the rest, your claims of inaccuracy on the Bible are shown to be baseless. Now, you might still reject it, but you will do so in the face of overwhelming evidence. And this is, again, just another one of those proofs where we have someone here in Genesis who the prophet um, 
if you don't know the story of Rachel, if you don't know the story of Benjamin, if you don't know the story of Israel's history, you won't understand what Jeremiah the prophet was speaking of when he spoke of the Messiah who was yet to come. And then Matthew, of course, reflects back on that in his gospel. Three different books of the Bible written at three different times, many different people involved, different cultures, and yet they carry the same theme. So let's move on. I want to focus here on verse 22 for just a moment, but before I do, we need to study the family tree one more time. We also need to understand the customs of the times. The firstborn son of any family was the heir. He would be the one to take the father's place and all the family wealth and business, the estate, it would all go to him when the father died. And we've seen this pattern established previously in the Bible. And there are many places in the world that still practice this custom today. And this is also even the way of royal families today. This is the way it still operates. But here in our covenant family, Reuben was Israel's firstborn son. But remember, he came from Leah. And Leah was not the one that Jacob wanted or loved. And it seems that Jacob didn't mind having normal husband and wife relations with Leah, but his heart belonged to Rachel. Rachel was the one for, for whom he had worked all those years. And don't think for one second that this was a secret because it was not. We can believe, and it's actually going to be shown to us in chapters yet to come, that the brothers know full well where they stand. Rachel was Israel's first wife, even though she was second. Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin, were the quote-unquote real sons, and all the others were lesser, even the firstborn, whose name was Reuben. And also, everyone knew that Jacob had tricked his own father, Isaac and his brother Esau out of the birthright and the blessing. And we've talked about that extensively. No one was probably more aware of the implications of everything I'm talking about here. All these facts, all these circumstances, nobody was more aware of it than Reuben. He, by birth, was the heir. So here we read on the hills of Rachel's death, and I'm exaggerating here a little bit. It would seem her body was not even cold yet. But Reuben does something which, to those of us in the West and in our current day and age, it seems a little bit weird. He has sex with Billah. And the Bible here calls Billah Jacob's concubine, and she was the concubine but she was also Rachel's handmaid. Now, this is not Reuben's mother's handmaid. This is Rachel who has passed away. This is her handmaid. You know, she was part of that other part of the family where Joseph and Benjamin are. That's the part of the family she's from. Now, I've read commentary which suggests that Israel, um, and that would be Jacob, 
but I'm going to try to use the right name from here on out, Israel. He went to see his father Isaac at the Tower of Eder, which is mentioned here. And I would just say, again, we need to be careful. Um, It's certainly possible that he did that, and it's within the boundaries of Scripture that he did that, but we don't know for sure from what the Bible says. But the point is, is that Israel was away. He was, as it states in verse 22, dwelling in that land. And it was while Israel was away that Reuben committed this crime. And make no mistake about it, friends, though there was no blood relation, this is still considered incest. Reuben was asserting his leadership over the family and the absence of his father, Israel. And kings would often take the concubines of a conquered enemy And in a similar fashion, that's what we see Reuben doing here. He's stating, I am king now, or I'm going to be king pretty soon. And Joseph and Benjamin, I don't care what the old man says about you. I'm the firstborn. And as we look at the end of verse 22, we even see some more information here. It says that Israel heard about it. Well, this would imply that Israel was perhaps out of town, so to speak, when this sexual act happened. But we will see here, uh, coming up in chapter 48 and chapter 49, toward the end of Genesis, that Israel does not forget what Reuben did. And again, I would point us to God's law in Deuteronomy 22.30. It states, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. And again, I would just point to a lesson from earlier. Even though we did not have the law at this time, we did not have God's law, they didn't have Deuteronomy yet, I would simply point out again that they knew better. And isn't it interesting how God has written his law even upon the hearts of the wicked to some degree? They know this was not to be done. And we'll see that Reuben will lose the very thing that he was attempting to take here. He will not have the status of the firstborn. And not to get too far ahead of myself here, but neither will Simeon or Levi. The right of the firstborn will actually fall to the fourth in line, which is Judah. And from Judah, if you remember from the last episode, comes the Savior, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we will explore that more when we get there. So verses 23 through 26, that gives us the list of the sons. And if you need the family tree, there it is. We have 12 sons. How many tribes are there in Israel? That's right. There's 12 And verse 27 through 29 record Isaac's death at the age of 180 years. Esau and Jacob come together to bury their father. And just to kind of summarize this whole chapter, if I can do so with a quote from R.C. Sproul, he says, Jacob's journey through time as indicated by births, verses 16 through 18, deaths, verses 8, 19, and 20, and genealogies, verses 23 through 26, and through space, as indicated by itineraries, verses 6, 16, 21, and 27, is brought to 
completion because God was with him. Verse 3. He returns to pay his vow at Bethel, verses 1 through 8, is confirmed as the successor to God's Abrahamic promises, verses 9 through 15, sees the 12 tribes of Israel safely settled in the promised land, verses 16 through 26, and is reunited with his father and brother, verses 27 through 29. And I really think that's a beautiful summary given uh, by R.C. Sproul, and you can go back and look at each one of those verses and those groupings of verses, and you can see how that we've got a lot going on in this chapter, but it's kind of a conclusion of sorts to the end of one generation and the beginning of the next generation. One chapter concludes, so to speak, and another chapter is about to begin. Not so much here in the book of Genesis, but in the life of Israel. Now, with that said, my hope and prayer is that this study is useful to you. Consider how the Bible unites to tell one single story. May your faith be strengthened as you see the consistency of Scripture and the promises of God fulfilled time after time. And may you know and see the Savior, even from the beginning of this great book of books. So until the next time, think on these things. again for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith may you grow in christ in the study of the bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him. <music>